0: your next day. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
1: Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X governance. Learn more at ibm.com/governance. IBM. Let's create.
3: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm DeBlain and And we are still talking about the Freedom Rides. So we've been talking about them now for a little while, but we've been talking about the Freedom Rides that took place in the American South in 1961. And just in case you missed those earlier episodes, it was about groups of protesters, black and white, male and female, from all over the country who rode buses through Virginia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia, and most notably through Alabama and Mississippi to test laws that were already in place but were largely overridden by local Jim Crow traditions.
1: Yep, and one thing we kept emphasizing throughout those episodes was the press coverage of the rides, especially the photos. People across the U.S. saw these images of beaten up students, a bus on fire, and violent mobs going up against nonviolent protesters. But the thing is, is that people around the world saw those images too, not just in the U.S., even all the way in Australia, where they really struck a chord. Australian society was also segregated along racial lines, since the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander Australians were essentially second-class citizens, underserved in housing and health care, ineligible for federal benefits, and often without legal rights for their own children. And I think that's the
3: part that most people know about Aboriginal uh, people, that loss of their children, the stolen generation. But in the 1950s and the early 60s, campaigns for Aboriginal rights were starting to gain ground in Australia. But the fact remained that many Australians in the larger cities just weren't really aware of how bad discrimination and how bad conditions were in the smaller interior towns and on the reservation. So a publicity fueled event like an Australian version of the Freedom Rides would be possibly just the thing to kind of shake them up, wake them up a little bit.
1: Right. But we can't act as though there was just this neat and direct jump through from the students in Sydney watching students in Nashville and immediately going out and staging their own Freedom Rides. Instead, and kind of ironically, it was a later U.S. civil rights event that jump-started the Australian Freedom Rides, and that was the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So while the act was being debated in Congress, students in Sydney showed their disapproval of the attempts to block the bill by dressing up as KKK members and protesting outside of the U.S. Embassy.
3: This obviously caused quite a ruckus, as you could imagine. There were arrests, there were international headlines, and unsurprisingly, there was some backlash, too. Uh, Mrs. R. showed, for instance, wrote into the Sydney Morning Herald to point out kind of the obvious here. Until Aborigines had the same rights as white Australians, it was a bit hypocritical to protest racial discrimination in other countries. So, The students really took that point to heart and they decided to form a group and and try to deal with this, try to learn more about racism in their own country. these students at the University of Sydney formed a new group to focus on Australian issues, and they called it the Student Action for Aborigines, um, S-A-F-A for short. And it was headed up by Charles Perkins. And Perkins is a pretty well-known figure for most Australians, I think. But I'm not sure. I hadn't heard of him before, and I'm not sure how well-known he is outside of Australia. He eventually became the first Aborigine to earn a university degree, and that's probably what he's most famous for. He was also the first to head up a government department. But he had been born on a reservation near Alice Springs, and like a lot of mixed-race children, he had been removed from his parents and raised in an Anglican boys' home. But unlike a lot of the other children who had fewer opportunities, he was really, really good at soccer. And he had gotten to go play pro in England and finally even turned down an offer with Manchester United. I think even those of us who don't know much about soccer <laughs> know about Manchester chester united he turned down an offer with them to return back to australia and play as captain for one of the local clubs and there was a two-part reason for that i mean one it's a good soccer opportunity but the other is that living abroad had made him think more about devoting himself to aboriginal rights at home he wanted to he wanted to be at home and he wanted to make a difference
1: Yeah, enough to give up a huge opportunity to play for one of the biggest leagues in the world. So with Perkins at the head of the SAFA, the group started planning something big, and they decided to follow the model of the U.S. Freedom Riders. So basically, a bus tour with both men and women of European and Aboriginal descent taking on New South Wales. Yeah, and they even
3: explicitly were trying to follow the U.S. Freedom Riders model. Here's a clip from their announcement of the ride. The party, known as SAFA, plans to see firsthand the conditions in which Aboriginal people of New South Wales are living. The team will also make protests in certain towns in which it is felt that there is discrimination against the Aboriginal people. The team has been largely patterned on the concept of the Freedom Riders, who were involved in the programs of integration in the United States. So the whole thing, though, was going to be a chartered bus, of course, and it was going to cost £800 for accommodation, food, everything like that on the 10-day tour. And I like the way they raise money for it. It's it's very old-fashioned sounding, selling Christmas cards, staging folk and jazz concerts, and holding dances, too. So by February 1965, they were all ready
1: to go. Unlike the U.S. rides, though, where the goal was to test laws that were already in place, the SAFA ride would try to do these three things. The first was attract public attention to the plight of the Aborigines and everything about that, their poor health, education, housing issues, and also to help lessen segregation between Aborigines and whites. And finally, also to support the local Aborigines in ending discrimination in their own communities. So it was part protest-slash-media campaign, part fact-finding mission. And the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies has copies of the survey forms that the students took with them, which I think is really interesting. The questionnaire for Aborigines included questions like, are the white people giving the Aborigines a fair chance? Do you think that the aboriginal situation has improved at all in the past 20 years? And can you say that you have never been to the doctor?
3: And the questionnaire for white people included questions like, the aboriginal problem exists because aborigines are misunderstood. Do you agree? Aborigines who still have their separate customs should give them up and become average citizens. Do you agree? And really kind of hard hitting ones, too, personal ones. Would you welcome an aboriginal neighbor in your street? I liked how the questions are sort of these grand social questions, but also ones Ones like, have you been to the doctor? Have you um, or would you welcome a neighbor on your street? You know, ones that people are going to have to answer kind of honestly, I would think. But Perkins wasn't the only eventual big name on this trip. Other notable members of the group included Jim Spiegelman, who was later the chief justice of New South Wales Supreme Court. Darcy, I think, Cassidy, who is a student reporter and has done a lot of the writing about the Freedom Ride, Reverend Ted Knoffs of the Wayside Chapel. I kind of thought of him as the Diane Nash of the Australian Freedom Rides organizing things back in the city. And Anne Curthoys, who journaled the trip. And it's interesting to read her journal, too, because she interspersed the eventual violence and all of the hard living conditions that they observed with some lighter moments, like learning how to toss a boomerang and playing basketball with Aboriginal leagues. So sort of getting down to the relationship building that the students were trying to accomplish as well.
1: Right. So they set out and their plan was to visit several cities. I'll try not to butcher them too much. The cities of Orange, Wellington, Gilgondra, Walgett, Moree, Bogabilla, Tenorfield, Lismore, Grafton, Bowerville, Kempsey, and Tari, and they were staying in most places only about a day. So it was a quick tour. They were they
3: were pretty much in and out of most of these cities, although they were or towns rather. They were visiting Aborigines living in different situations. So those who were on a settlement uh which is kind of like a reservation I I think, and those who were living in towns and talking to some of the white people too. So the first few days of the trip really favored that fact finding aspect. And the students didn't run into too much outright hostility, even though they did see a lot of social problems. In Wellington, Curth noted that there were tin houses with dirt floors and kids who all had eye diseases and really contaminated, dirty river water that they had to walk long distances for. In a later town, they noted that town jobs weren't really a possibility for the Aborigines, so they'd have to do seasonal labor in the wool industry, which was kind of unreliable and only got you through part of the year. But the first real trouble came in Walgett, where word had already gotten out what kind of protests they were planning on staging.
1: Yeah, somehow word had gotten out already that they planned to petition the return service league club which refused entrance to aboriginal veterans of world war one and two so when the freedom riders get to walgett they are picketing with signs that say things like end color bar and bullets did not discriminate and they start to draw a crowd both of curious aborigines and of white people and in sort of a cheeky move the uh, Return Service League folks even offered everyone drinks Which at they that refused. Point. Yeah, so at sundown, the students who had by that point been joined by local Aborigines ended the picket and headed back to their accommodation, which was an Anglican church hall where they'd stayed before with no problems. But the minister told them this time that they'd have to leave. They had antagonized the people and apparently left beer cans in the hall.
3: Yeah, which um, one of the journaling Freedom Rider does admit to. So this is a problem, though. They're stuck in Walgett without accommodation. And the local Aborigines did offer them accommodation in these abandoned tram cars on the edge of town, which was nice, but the Freedom Riders were worried that such a dark distance location with no kind of defensive protection would just mean trouble in the middle of the night. So instead they fetch their driver from his hotel and they headed out of town. But a few miles out of town in a, in a scene that must have really kind of been reminiscent of the The events that took place in Anniston in the U.S. Freedom Rides, it's this dark, uninhabited area, and a posse of cars and trucks appeared and started to push the bus off the road. And eventually, a small truck did tip the bus. It didn't fall completely over, but uh, cars surrounded it. And... It seemed like a pretty bad situation suddenly for the Freedom Riders. But fortunately, those cars turned out to contain Aborigines who were trailing the bus to try to protect it. And any of the cars that were harassing the bus sped off into the the night. And the students, accompanied by their Aboriginal escort, went back to town and filed a police report. And by that point, a crowd had gathered. So it was sort of the first wake-up call that this Bus ride wasn't going to necessarily be all fact-finding and inspiration. Um, and after that, they they went on, though, continued on the trip, and eventually wound up in Maury, where after the events at Walga, the press coverage had really exploded.
1: Yeah, it was good for the mission, all that press. It raised public attention, but not so great for getting straight answers out of the people they were interviewing. People weren't as eager to talk to them after that, perhaps understandably. But the students decided that they needed a focus like they had in Walgett with the Return Service League Club. They picked out public pools this time, which were segregated by the local council. And Aboriginal kids were only allowed to stay in the pool one day a week for a brief school PE session. So with the permission of Aboriginal parents, the students took a group of kids to the pool and tried to buy them admission. After an hour or so of stalling and a phone call to the mayor, the pool staff finally relented and decided to let the kids in. Perkins immediately came back with 21 more kids and also talked to the white kids who were there to see what they thought of the whole thing, basically. And Kurt always remembers them being pretty ambivalent, at least a lot less so than their parents were.
3: Yeah, who were who were not into the whole thing. And after the seeming success in Maury, it seemed like they had integrated the pool. The group moved on to Bagabilla for more surveys where they learned that educational opportunities didn't really exist for The indigenous people beyond sixth grade or so, and police really had free reign of the homes. You know, just more of this painting a picture of what life was like for these people. But on their way to their next stop, they got a call and found out that the day after they had left Maury, 60 Aboriginal kids tried to go back and get in the pool and exercise this new right they had. And while some of them were allowed in, the pool closed early. And when it reopened about an hour later, the mayor stated that it was back to the segregationist statute that had existed from the 1950s. So the Freedom Riders had a little debate about what to do, whether to keep on going or to go back to Maureen and, and not let this not let their actions be defeated so quickly. So they went back to Maury, and this time it was a lot more violent. There was fighting, there were arrests, and the riders were even pelted with gravel and rotten eggs and vegetables. But finally the mayor did agree to put forward a motion that admittance into the pool would be based on health only. And um, that, to me that kind of sounds like a way for him to still exercise some racial discrimination because the health of the aborigines was often worse than the the local white people but the riders still felt like they had achieved somewhat of a victory and they were escorted by police back to the bus and they ran into a problem though another problem that our riders in the american south had run into their driver quit
1: yeah so they had to bring in a new driver to be able to move on and As for the rest of the ride, there really wasn't anything as dramatic as Walgett or Maury that happened on the rest of the trip. Later towns did show some discrimination, poor living conditions, very few opportunities, but no violence. So by the end, Curthois admitted that they were losing some steam and the press kind of made the interviews impossible for them. All the press did keep the stories in the paper for a week, though. The stories were often sympathetic, but sometimes entirely dismissive. A cartoon in The Australian, for example, pretty much made fun of the writers, showing them sort of riding off and the Aborigines being left behind in a cloud of dust. So I think that, as you were saying, that's probably how a lot of people felt about the rides,
3: Yeah, but the riders were also they were really interested in making sure that that cartoon or that whole view of the ride wasn't accurate. And they wanted to put the information that they had gathered through all those surveys and all the connections they had made to meeting people and and making connections with the local groups that existed to to put all that to good use. So later in the year, an Aboriginal organization in Walgett asked for help desegregating the luxury theater in the Oasis Hotel, and they went to the student group for help. And four students and two Aboriginal women were eventually arrested when the attempt was made in August 1965. Perkins also reported back at the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders and presented some of that data to Um, some of the data that he and the students had found. And as we mentioned, too, he went on to have a career in Aboriginal affairs for the government.
1: So while some eventual Aboriginal rights leaders remember the effect of the writers pulling into their towns, the big change really came from putting the violence, discrimination, and the poor living conditions front and center for Australians who weren't used to seeing it at the time. And they got it all on tape, too. The bus Being run off the road in Walgett, the vice president of the Walgett Return Service League Club saying he'd never allow an Aborigine to join, all of that ended up on film. And people who were more removed from this day to day discrimination were shocked to see it.
3: Yeah. So when the time came to actually change legislation, more Australians had a better sense of the true discrimination in their country. And there were two parts of the Constitution that specifically discriminated against Aborigines. And the first was that federal laws didn't apply to Indigenous people. So this made it so that different states, different local governments could pass different laws regarding Aborigines. And it meant that they didn't have access to federal services like Social Security. And the other main problem with the Constitution is that Aborigines weren't counted in the census. So it meant that they only got these very basic state services. And um, you can actually see ads or campaigns for trying to get aborigines counted in the census and and they make quite a point but Only two years after the ride, the 1967 referendum amended those two sections of the Constitution with more than 90% of Australians voting in favor of doing so. So even though Aborigines didn't get full rights from the 1967 referendum, it was still a really big step forward in better services and and better treatment and just kind of acceptance that there was a, a major
1: problem. And even though the Australian Freedom Ride has a few years to go before it hits its 50th anniversary, students at the University of Sydney marked the event this year, traveling by bus through the same towns and gathering input from indigenous communities to present to the government to further reform. So. Take it a step further yeah, again. Yeah, keep going with mm-hmm. it. And they were even led out by the Central Coast Aboriginal Motorcycle Group, the Black Knights. Which
3: I just thought that sounded so awesome. But I thought it was interesting that they chose the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Freedom Rides, kind of the starting point of of the inspiration behind the Australian rides as as the anniversary they wanted to commemorate. I I don't know. It's been really neat to learn about these two events. And I have to thank listener Eli who suggested the Australian freedom ride, which I hadn't heard of. I of course knew about the U S freedom rides, but uh, learning that there was this Australian offshoot made me want to research both of them and, and get to know not only the offshoot, but the inspiration too.
1: Yeah, And it's, I mean, even though one was inspired by the other, they're very different. They are different. And it, it's been nice to
3: uh, to learn a little bit more about them and to kind of compare and contrast, I guess you would say. Yeah, the
1: climate, especially.
3: Yeah, exactly. How two different countries, two very different countries with a similar yet still very different problem dealt with it. Um, so thank you to Eli. And also thank you to listener Helen, who helped us out with some of these pronunciations. Any mistakes are ours and not hers. (laughs) So we were really interested to learn that Australia had its own Freedom Ride, and I'm sure that there have been other events inspired by the original Freedom Rides or or just events kind of like this. Everybody gets on a bus and goes out and accomplishes something. So if you want to let us know about any of those other events around the world, feel free to email us at podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we are on Facebook too.
1: And if you're not done learning about Australia related topics we have an article on our website called What Was Australia's Stolen Generation? And you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com
2: all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy
1: Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one.